so we have to get a couple of things straight here. First of all, yes, it's definitely true that life is good in Sweden and, and things are fine in Sweden. And if you do ever visit Sweden, for instance, if you go to Stockholm, like Paul Krugman, he always says, I, every time some right-winger says that socialism leads to disaster, I want to force them to a tour in Stockholm. And it's true, <laughs> if you go to Stockholm, you will not find like tons of misery and poverty and horribleness. But the question is, what does this have to do with socialism? And my answer is absolutely nothing. That's Carl Svonberg. He's a research associate at the Ayn Rand Institute. And as you might have guessed, he's from Sweden. That's from an interview I did with him in 2016. The Paul Krugman he's referring to is Paul Krugman, the economist that has a column in the New York Times. Paul Krugman admires Sweden a lot, or at least used to. And it's not just Paul Krugman of the New York Times who's a fan of Sweden. I call Carl because of something I noticed on Facebook during the presidential election last year. A lot of my friends and acquaintances, people I follow, seem to be fans of Sweden too. And it wasn't because of their hockey team. I saw a notable number of memes. That's shareable pictures, little short videos, articles, lists, and other posts about Sweden and Scandinavia. They were all making the claim in different ways that what was great about Sweden? That it was a socialist country. It's hard to get a sense of these on the radio, but here I am describing some of them to Carl. So I have one here. It's got a picture of a, a broken down city and it says, Sweden, a socialist country. And it says, oh wait, this is Detroit. And then it has a picture of Sweden, which looks, I mean, everything looks beautiful and the colors are wonderful. And it says, this is Sweden. I hear I have one about Denmark. It says, why is Denmark the happiest country in the world? $20 minimum wage, 33 hour work week, free university, free childcare, free healthcare. Share if you think America should follow their lead. Perhaps it was because of the rise in popularity of United States Senator Bernie Sanders during his bid for the nomination of the Democratic candidate for president that caused this uptick in the popularity of a socialist Swedish utopia. During a Democratic presidential debate, Sanders said, quote, I think we should look to countries like Denmark, like Sweden and Norway, and learn what they have accomplished for their working people, unquote. He said that in response to a question about whether someone calling themselves a democratic socialist could really win an election in America. Sanders' remarks really capture for me the spirit of the memes I was seeing. The idea that Sweden is a country where people thrive because they're living under a socialist system, but not a socialism like the USSR or China, where millions die brutal deaths, but of a socialism done right. A socialism without bloodshed, without crumbling cities, without poverty, and without social upheaval. In other words, a socialist success story. But does Sweden really demonstrate that socialism works? And what about Cuba or Venezuela or the Soviet Union? What lessons can we learn from Sweden? This time on Rise and Fall, Sweden and Scandinavia. It's far away, it's cold, it's mysterious, and some Americans push their view of economic morality onto it. Let's peel back the meatball curtain. We'll hear more from Carl Svonberg, from philosopher Ayn Rand, philosopher Ankar Gatte, and Don Watkins. He's an author and director of education at the Center for Industrial Progress, and up until recently, a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. First things first, it's important to get clear on what socialism is. 
Looking in a dictionary, socialism is the political system where the means of production are controlled by everybody, by the collective, in other words, by the government. It's a system where private property is abolished and the government takes over just about everything. When I called Carl Svonberg last year to talk to him about the memes I'd been seeing on Facebook, he said that there's just one giant problem with using Sweden as an example of socialism. Simply put, Sweden isn't a socialist country. It's a capitalist one. When I say Sweden is not a socialist country, I mean it's not a place where the government owns and controls almost all the means of production. In fact, it's the complete opposite in Sweden. The overwhelming majority of everything is privately owned and run by private individuals, and so it has been since at least the 19th century. And so, but what about America then? Yeah, I mean, America is just like Sweden uh, in the sense that its basic structure of the economy is capitalistic. Almost everything is privately owned and run by private individuals. But just like Sweden and just like virtually every country in the West, it has a lot of government interferences and interventions all over the place, including even some, you know, uh, things that are owned and operated by the government. Like in the U.S., you have public education. In Sweden, we have socialized medicine. You can say Sweden and America are both mixed economies, mixed economies, which means they are mixtures of capitalism and statism, of government controls in the economy. The capitalistic or the free elements are the dominant ones in both cases. If you're saying that there's there's a mixture of, of freedom and government control, couldn't somebody also argue that, yeah, America's doing well and Sweden's doing well, but it's doing well to the extent that they have these socialist um, policies implemented? Whatever I'm going to say now is obviously not at all the complete answer to this question, but I will say this. The reason, like just on a common sense level, people can make observations like the following. The more the government controls the economy, whether we're talking about the U.S. or about Sweden or whatever, the more problems you will see. Svanberg says that in order to see the influence that capitalism has had on prosperity in Sweden in raising the standard of living there, a good place to start is to look at the consequences of the times when Sweden had a relatively free economy versus the times when it became more controlled. And although Sweden has never been fully capitalist nor fully socialist, it has swung back and forth enough times from more freedom to more government controls to make that point again and again. In other words, by looking at the history of Sweden, you can start to see a pattern. If you see that Sweden achieved the most when it was the freest, and it achieves way less or nothing when it was unfree, I mean, that is at least <laughs> a very good start to suspect. It's probably the freedom part that makes the difference. Just like it's no more different than if you have a headache and every time you take a pill, it always works. You would start to think it's probably the headache pill that has something to do with this. That's a good starting point. Looking at Sweden in the mid-1800s, you probably would not have marked it for the success it was about to achieve. At that time, Sweden was poor. It was mega poor. It was like dirt poor. Actually, it was one of the poorest countries in uh, Western Europe in the beginning of the 19th century. Now, it was also a very controlled and regulated economy. But then, in the 19th century, they started to decontrol and the st government started to get out of the way. And once capitalism, as we know today, was established in Sweden, 
that's when uh, Sweden actually began to become a very rich and prosperous country. The 100 years from 1870 to 1970 is referred to as Sweden's 100 golden years. It was during those 100 years that Sweden went through a spectacular transformation. It went from being one of the poorest countries in the world to one of the richest. By 1970, in terms of GDP per capita, and that's a measure of how wealthy on average a citizen of a given country is, Sweden was number three in the world. What was responsible for this transformation? Capitalism. The government was not involved very much in the economy. Taxes were low. Government spending was small. And the government was protecting people's freedom, the freedom to create companies, to earn profits, and to keep what they earned, and to pursue their individual happiness. It was in these 100 years that all of the innovative products and brands that you're probably familiar with were created. IKEA, Volvo, Saab, Hasselblad, Tetra Pak, Ericsson. Some older people might remember Ericsson. <laughs> this was way back when cell phones were not smart. H&M. I mean, it's a long list and almost, almost every famous or big Swedish business was founded in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and became these this big businesses when Sweden was at its freest, economically speaking. Then, starting in the 1970s, things changed. Sweden took a turn towards significantly more government control in the economy and in people's lives. There was a dramatic expansion of regulation on business, taxes on producers, those businessmen, engineers, and artists who create products, services, and entertainment rose significantly. Those top earners could be expected to give up 80% or more of their income to the state. And there was even discussions about simply nationalizing successful businesses. In the 1990s, struggling banks were taken over by the state. And during that time, there was also a dramatic expansion of the welfare state. The average Swede started paying more and more taxes, typically 60% of their earnings, in order to pay for increased government spending and health care, pensions, and other services like daycares and schools. According to Svanberg, government spending doubled from 30 to 60% of GDP from 1960 to 1980. And there are real consequences. So, so what are some of the signs of decline that we could observe in the primarily 70s and 80s and even the 90s? Economic growth slowed down dramatically. As a result, Sweden went from being the third or fourth richest country in the entire world, okay, in the early 70s. And then in the late 1990s, early 2000s, it was 15th, 17th, 18th, depending on the year. If we look at 50 largest Swedish companies, not a single one of them were founded after 1970. That's crazy. Think of all the companies that are in, in the United States that have been founded since the 70s. Yeah. We only have to look at one thing to, to see the dramatic difference. Silicon Valley. Uh, this is if you measure the size of the companies in terms of employees. But even if you look at companies in terms of revenues, we only have two companies since 1970. And I should add, those two companies, the only reason they uh, uh, existed is because they managed to work around government regulations. At this point in the interview, Carl tells the story of one of those two companies, TV3, 
a Swedish satellite TV company founded in the late 1980s by television entrepreneur Jan Stenbeck. Sweden had a government monopoly on uh, TV, and the only reason one guy finally figured out how to uh, start uh, undermining the government's TV monopoly was that he found a loophole in the law that allowed him to broadcast stuff from England, okay? So it's just because the government didn't have complete, almost totalitarian control over this area that he figured out a thing like that. And I should add, when this happened, when, when Swedes started to buy uh, satellite dishes to watch this uh, now competing TV channel, TV Free, it's known as in Sweden, uh, there was actually <laughs> a suggestion from uh, the Social Democrats to ban satellite dishes. So people will not be allowed to watch this one competing alternative to the government's TV uh, monopoly. I mean, that, that tells you a lot about how things have changed since then. If you come to Sweden today, we have tons of TV channels, thanks to a lot of deregulations that came later. As I tell Carl in the original interview, there's something both tragic and inspiring about that story. It's inspiring to think that entrepreneurs, those innovators that bring us the technology, products, and services that contribute one by one to our standard of living, will find a way, if at all possible, through the maze of government controls that would otherwise squash them. But it's tragic that they have to find a loophole, some unpaved over crack in the controlling system in order to do so. He's a real hero for a lot of people in Sweden. He had this saying, politics beats business. Technology beats politics. <laughs> Today in Sweden, the pendulum has swung back towards more freedom and away from statism. And once again, prosperity is coming back. While it's true that the welfare state is still a big part of the identity of Sweden, starting around the mid-2000s, Sweden took a turn towards significantly more freedom. And although they still remain high, about 50% of what the average Swede earns goes directly to the government. Income taxes were cut significantly. According to the late Johnny Munkhammer, a member of the Swedish parliament, working people are now keeping what amounts to an extra month of wages each year. Borders were open to immigrants, making a larger labor force possible. State-owned companies, including banks, an oil producer, pharmaceutical companies, even a computer and home electronics company, were sold into private hands. Sweden isn't a shining example of socialism. In fact, it's an example of the prosperity that capitalism brings. Just from an economic perspective, the more freedom in Sweden, the more prosperity. The more the creation of wealth, the higher the standard of living. Even the more television channels. The more controls, the more stagnation. But the welfare state is still a big part of the identity of Sweden. So what about the welfare state? Is that where we should be aiming? That's next. Two hundred years ago, men were not afraid to devise and establish the first and only moral social system in human history. Here's philosopher Ayn Rand in 1976, speaking at Boston's Ford Hall Forum in a talk titled The Moral Factor. In that talk, Rand discusses the Swedish welfare state and the reasons why people hold it up as an ideal society. Today, after an unparalleled demonstration of that system's achievements, 
greatness, benevolence, and moral righteousness, men are afraid to identify it or to praise it or even to say thank you. They squirm to avoid the system's name, which is capitalism. What then is being hailed as the ideal, loudly and openly? Not socialism or communism, at least not in this country, not too loudly and not yet. But that mongrel preface to socialism and communism, that dream of the philosophically illiterate, which seems to combine the having your cake and eating it too, the welfare state. Let us take the welfare state at its alleged best, as it is practiced in Sweden. You have heard it claimed for years that Sweden is an ideal society, an example of peaceful, bloodless collectivism, which combines material security with intellectual freedom, both guaranteed to everyone by the government. Even though a meme is a relatively new thing, it turns out that Sweden has been used as an example of an ideal society for a really long time. But turning back to those memes I was seeing, it's true that some who advocate for the United States to become more like the Scandinavian countries have in mind not socialism, but instead a much larger welfare state. A place where people are generally left free, but where the government confiscates and redistributes vast sums of wealth in order to finance unearned handouts, money, healthcare, education, to people regardless of their ability to pay. Here I am discussing a meme with Svanberg that encourages people to share if they think America should head in the direction of a much larger welfare state. I Here I have one about Denmark. It says, why is Denmark the happiest country in the world? $20 minimum wage, 33-hour work week, free university, free childcare, free healthcare. Is free healthcare really free? Uh, well, no, of course not. Uh, <laughs> uh, None of these things that they list here are free or without consequences. I don't know by like by what definition or complete delusion people claim this is free. Most people pay between 40 to 50 percent or even more of their earnings in taxes. Okay. The point is you're paying for it. That's what I'm trying to say. It's not like someone else is paying for it. No, you are paying for it. Okay. Carl says that there are two big problems with the welfare state. The first is that you aren't free. Because you could argue, like, who cares? Okay, you pay a fortune and you get all these things for your money, okay? Healthcare is a good thing. So even if you kept all your money, a lot of us would spend money on healthcare, right? And a lot of us would save for college and a lot of us would pay for some sort of daycare service, perhaps. It's not primarily or only about money. It is about the fact that the government, by taking your money, by taxing it away from you, the government gets to decide how that money is going to be spent. You're not free to spend your money the way you want or to do what you think is best for your money. If you think, actually, I don't want to start saving for retirement, let's say. Maybe I want to do something else. Maybe I want to start the business, right? Maybe I want to take a risk with health care. Maybe you, you can imagine it all yourself. You know, people, it's the freedom that pre people lose with the welfare state. That's one of the worst things, that people are not free to decide how they want to spend their own hard-earned money. The second problem with the welfare state, according to Svanberg, is that it systematizes injustice. And that's the problem I'd like to focus on now. I'll let him explain what that means. It systematizes injustice. Because, as I said, yes, the typical guy 
who works and pay into the system, he will get most of it back, maybe all of it, okay? But it is also true, as many other people have noted, that the more you work, the more you're productive, the more you are creating values, the better you are at pursuing your own life and happiness and being rational and, and doing what's right, the more the system will penalize you, okay? You will pay much higher taxes. And that's a, a perversion of justice. Saying, okay, I was super good at producing furniture, so now I guess I should be robbed 80%, 100% of my income. That's vicious and thoroughly immoral. And then, let me also add, and this is another thing that really grinds my gears with the Scandinavian system, because this is something that's very rarely talked about. There are a lot of people in Sweden, Finland, Norway, that have never worked and had no intention of ever working, and you are paying for all of them, okay? So you are giving up your life dreams, your plans, to support them forever. And that is something we're all supposed to idolize, you know, think it's a great example for the rest of the world to follow, a system that punishes the most productive, punishes anyone who does something with their lives, and then gives tons of money and resources to the worst people possible. People say the Scandinavian countries, the welfare states are just and fair, or moral ideals. I mean, it's a complete joke. Discussion of the welfare state almost always focuses on the alleged beneficiaries of the system. But Ayn Rand illustrates how the doctrine of punishing the most productive plays out in practice by focusing on some victims of the welfare state. In her 1976 talk, Rand tells the story of official harassment by Swedish authorities of one of the most successful and prominent Swedes at the time. The case I want to discuss concerns the Swedish film director Ingmar Bergman. Rand is emphatic that she's not a fan of Bergman's work, but chose to speak about him because he was a prominent man in his field, someone who was admired by a great many people, both in Sweden and abroad, and someone who was treated terribly by the welfare state system. A story in the New York Times of March 16, 1976, reports, quote, Mr. Bergman was seized by two plainclothesmen on January 30 while rehearsing at the Royal Dramatic Theater in Stockholm. He was taken to police headquarters and questioned more than three hours about allegations that he had evaded taxes on $118,000 in income. Bergman, it seems, had been saving money for making films abroad, and that made Swedish authorities upset. At the time, about 80% of Bergman's income was taken by the Swedish tax code, and any money that the director made from his films, the films that people around the world happily paid to see, the Swedish government believed they had the moral right to first crack at. The case was dropped suddenly just a few days later, but Rand points out that the case says something profound about the attitude towards the best and most productive men in a welfare state like Sweden. Harry Schein, chairman of the Swedish Film Institute and a friend of Mr. Bergman, said, quote, there's something very Swedish about this whole case. The idea of people saying you can get away with anything. We call it the Royal Swedish Envy, and it's 400 years old. He added, one of the reasons Swedish equality is so advanced is that the motive behind it is not just socialism, but an active dislike of people who are supposed to be better. You have to cut people down. Everyone must be equal. 
make someone who's exceptional feel unexceptional. Close quote. Rand makes the point that the worst injustice of the welfare state is that it cuts down the exceptional in the name of morality, when these are the people who should be getting our praise and moral support. Instead, those who make the most of their lives, the ones that create and produce, as Svanberg says, are the ones who are marked by the system for the highest penalty. Here's his example. There used to be this company in Sweden in the 60s and 70s called Buketten, and it basically means flower bouquet. The founder, his name was Bengt Nygren. His whole idea with this company was to be the IKEA of flowers, produce bouquets in a very affordable way. And it was a loved company, very popular. He made a lot of money. He was very successful. In the 70s, two things happened. Well, first of all, he, like every other entrepreneur who is unusually successful, faced very high taxes. But in addition, this was when there were talks about socializing the economy. He didn't want his company that he had built up from the ground to be stolen by the government. And he couldn't see a way out. He felt forced to sell his business. And uh, then he left the country so he could save his money from taxes. So he was pushed out of the country. And, and he had to give up his own business because he didn't want to be around when the government would take it from him. According to Svanberg, it wasn't just about the fact that Bent Negram, the founder of Buketten, didn't want to give his company over to the government. But it was also that he was slurred for standing up for himself. This guy, whose only crime was that he was successful at supplying people with flower bouquets, one, well, he became later a leading social democratic politician, referred to this guy due to his, you know, because he was protesting all the taxes and the threats against him. He referred to him as antisocial and dangerous to society. But when most people hear talk of taking more money from producers like Ingmar Bergman or Benton Negram in order to increase the minimum wage, social security benefits, or offer free college for everyone, they think that this comes from a place of benevolence, of helping and nurturing other human beings. But philosopher Ankar Gatte says that, in fact, the exact opposite is true. Here he is in a 2014 episode of the Debt Dialogues podcast about the welfare state. So the idea that it's the welfare statist, the people pushing for a welfare state, for expansions of Social Security, of Medicare, for a uh, higher minimum or a so-called living wage, the people pushing for these kinds of things have such a malevolent view of individuals and of human beings. And the whole moral premise is a moral premise not that has nothing to do with benevolence or goodwill. It's the exact opposite. Their moral premise is, by virtue of having made something of your life, by virtue of becoming wealthy, of being productive, of having a good character, of having built something, by virtue of being a maker, you now are going to be penalized. We're going to take the wealth you've produced, we're going to take your time, we're going to take a part of your life and give it to someone precisely because they have not made anything, they've not produced anything, they've not earned anything. So you are, in effect, a serf and servant 
and not even a servant of something noble or good, of a servant of need, a servant of absence. It's the absence of wealth, the absence of a good character, the poor in spirit, or the poor. What gives them a claim to things is a negative, is an absence. It's the, as Ayn Rand would put it, it's the lack of value. That is such a malevolent view of human beings, that insofar as you're good, you're penalized. And insofar as you don't have any values and you're not good, you're rewarded. And to speak of that as a benevolent view of human beings and of human life is the exact opposite of the truth. So, Sweden isn't an example of a socialist country. It's a capitalist one with a large welfare state. Yet, people aren't looking too hard into those facts. Instead, Americans have been viewing Sweden as a socialist utopia, as a place where the morality of collectivism line up with the practicality of a thriving Western society for a really long time. And the many drawbacks of its large welfare state go largely unheard in America. Why does the idea of a socialist Sweden have so much power? And what does socialism really look like? That's next. So I have one here. It's got a picture of a, a broken down city and it says, Sweden, a socialist country. And it says, oh wait, this is Detroit. And then it has a picture of Sweden, which looks, I mean, everything looks beautiful and the colors are wonderful. And it says, this is Sweden. You tell me a little bit more about what the message there is supposed to be. Like, what do people think about Sweden? They re they want to refute the, the idea that every time you implement or create some sort of socialist society, it doesn't have to lead to the things we typically associate with socialism, namely economic decline or stagnation or uh, poverty or something like that. Critics of socialism usually love to look at the former Soviet Union or North Korea or Cuba even, you know, and, uh, you know, we make comparisons between East and West Berlin and East Germany and the rest of the Western world. And you could you could come up with one example after another or Hong Kong versus China. So then if you can find a country that seems to be socialist or is allegedly a socialist country and yet everything is fine, everything is, you know, fine and dandy. Life is good. So if you can find a country or a place like Sweden or Denmark or Norway that seems to prove all this wrong, yeah, it's very attractive <laughs> to rely on Sweden for that reason. I sat down with author and director of education at the Center for Industrial Progress, Don Watkins, to ask him about Sweden and to get clear about what socialism really is. Since he's written extensively on the morality of capitalism and the immorality of socialism and the welfare state, he says that there's a clear connection between the idea of socialism and how the implementation of that idea has played out everywhere it's been tried and to the extent that it has been tried. In order to see that connection, we have to start by being clear about what socialism is and its relationship to the welfare state. I began by asking him about Venezuela a socialist country that's been in the news a lot lately because it's been experiencing a rapid decline. Here's from our conversation. Yeah, I want to explore that a little bit more because I, I've seen people hold up socialism. I mean, people are saying it more and more. Like I hear Bill Maher saying, hey, what, what's the big deal? What are, 
that we're, we're saying the word, it's not a dirty word, it works. You could make the argument that uh, that a place like Venezuela, like maybe they just dial it in a little bit too far, you know, like that you need to get somewhere between sort of minimum safety net like we have in the United States to, you know, what, where you have lines for, for toilet paper and basic, you know, food and medicine. Um, so I'm curious what you would say about that. Well, I mean, it's sort of like saying, isn't the problem with Bernie Madoff that he stole billions and, you know, left people without anything, you know, their entire life savings, and isn't really what we should be after is to be like pickpockets and only take, you know, a little bit, take the bare minimum from people. The real issue here is is getting clear on what is this difference between a socialist state in a welfare state and seeing it as the difference between Bernie Madoff and a pickpocket. So there is a difference and it helps to start with just getting clear on first of all, what is capitalism? What is the alternative? Capitalism is a system that one way to think of it is it protects producers. It protects each person's right to create the material values that he needs to live and to enjoy life. So you get to decide how to work and you get to keep whatever you earn through productive action and voluntary trade. Your life is yours to live as you see fit. Socialism clearly means the destruction of producers. It means that, that the government has total control over who gets to produce, how they get to produce, and what they get to keep. And the welfare state is basically a compromise. It's an attempt to combine, you could put it as capitalist means with socialist ends. The welfare state says, you're more or less free to go and produce as you want, although government regulations control that to a large degree in all of these countries. But the government has first claim on anything you do produce. It gets to decide whether you keep the results of your production and how much you get to keep of the results of your production. The bottom line is that you don't have a right to your income. The first claim on it is the government, and ultimately underlying that is other members of society, the needs of others has a claim, first claim over what you produce. And so the idea is that we're just gonna have a partial enslavement of producers. And so instead of destroying them, we're just merely gonna cripple them for the good of society. And so, I mean, if you ask me, is the problem with Venezuela that it goes too far in the direction of destroying producers, which is basically what the question is, well, no, it merely illustrates in a very tragically illuminating way, why it's evil to punish producers rather than protect producers. It, it shows the kind of consistent implementation of the policy that the welfare state is merely kind of a half measure arm. So what is socialism exactly? In the deepest way, socialism is a variant of intellectually, you can put it as collectivism. The, the principle that the individual is subordinate to the state, that the group has primacy over the individual, and that the individual's job is to serve and sacrifice for society or its embodiment of the state. Politically, it's a variant of totalitarianism. It is that the individual has no rights. It's the group has a trump card to control his life. And in particular with socialism, it, it stresses the economic control of the individual. It's where the state owns and operates the major means of production and controls distribution of wealth. But if you really want to get it, like what are the hallmarks of socialism when that is actually put into practice, you need to get 
that is, I mean, the complete obliteration of individual hopes and dreams. And in the end, a real scramble for mere survival. That is the essence of socialism. And what I want to stress here is that these atrocities follow logically and directly from the moral premise. It's not, well, it's good in theory, but it's bad in practice. The theory says that we subordinate the individual to the group, and the practice is the destruction of the individual. And that's exactly what you would expect. Watkins says that in order to see that connection between the idea and how that plays out, a good place to start is by looking at who took the idea of socialism most seriously. And what did that look like? To my mind, there is no clear-cut example of socialism taken seriously than the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. They, they were trained in philosophy in France, most of the leading members of it, and they were explicitly devoted to this idea of socialism putting the we above the I. And what they wanted to do was obliterate the I, obliterate the individual. Everybody was going to think of themselves fully and totally as part of this one big we. Here's a little primer on the Khmer Rouge. In April of 1975, the Khmer Rouge, a small group led by dictator Pol Pot and others, took power by overthrowing the military dictatorship in Cambodia during the Cambodian Civil War. Over the next three years, eight months, and 21 days of their regime, in service of their collectivist ideal, they would be responsible for the deaths of about two million Cambodians. Besides executions and disease, a common way to die was of starvation. How did they try to really implement that collectivist moral premise in practice? Well, let me just give you one example. They had created a society that was literally starving to death because they had emptied the cities, put everybody, including people who had never farmed under these collective farms. As you know, on a collective farm, whether or not you work hard makes virtually no difference to how much you get to eat and how much your family gets to eat. So it's not exactly a great incentive to engage in the backbreaking, difficult labor that farming consists of there. And so people who were starving, what did they start doing? Well, they started foraging for food, for lizards and spiders of all things. And the government said, no, that's unacceptable. Now, why is it unacceptable? Because you get more than other people. You have a few spider legs in your stomach that your neighbor didn't have, and that's unacceptable. We all have to starve equally. And that is really what socialism is. I mean, the, the bottom line with Cambodia is that the Khmer Rouge killed something like a third of their citizens. Like, that is what it means. If you say that the society trumps the individual, don't be surprised when you see a lot of dead individuals. Socialist regimes have orchestrated all sorts of tragedy and mass murder in service of the ideal of the group above the individual. It's often difficult to catalog exactly how many millions of people have died under each socialist regime. Like, was the USSR responsible for 50 million deaths, or is it more like 62 million? Historians debate. Today in Venezuela, we're watching the socialist dream play out. There it has meant that once fertile land lays fallow, food is short, as is medicine and other basic necessities. Waiting in Soviet-style breadlines has become a way of life. In any given manifestation of socialism taken seriously, it may be difficult to predict how exactly the devastation will play out, but devastation is no accident. It will happen. Implementation of socialism is always bloody. It's always filled with poverty. It's always filled with stagnation. It's always filled with brutality because under socialism, individuals don't matter. You have to think, well, look, people have their own independent desires, their own goals, the things they want to achieve. 
Well, what happens if they try to achieve them and it's not part of some dictator's five-year plan? Well, then the government has to use physical force to stop people from pursuing their own happiness. And that's why whenever you have socialism, you inevitably see secret police, walls to keep people from fleeing, political prisoners, and ultimately starvation and mass executions because that's the only alternative. People who are recalcitrant and don't want to obey, they have to be stopped by force. Okay, so, but let's, so let's get back to Sweden, which is the whole reason that I wanted to do this episode in the first place. So I've talked to Carl Svanberg. He's told me, look, Sweden is not an example of socialism. It's actually uh, your basis of the, the social system. It's a capitalist one. And yeah, they have a big, a big welfare state, but um, they're essentially a capitalist country. So we can't even say that Sweden is, is really an example of socialism. I'm wondering, so why do people hold up Sweden as this shining example of socialism? Why is it so powerful? Well, because they accept the moral premise of socialism, but they don't want to take responsibility for socialism's actual record. And so, I mean, if you look at the countries that actually tried to implement socialism and that did so seriously, um, you're talking about Soviet Russia, East Germany, Red China, Cambodia, North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela. And the results are clear. I mean, it's poverty, it's stagnation, it's starvation and mass carnage. And so if you're committed to this moral ideal that man exists to serve society and that the government should have total power over the economic lives of individuals, well, you need to come up with an example of how that's not a complete disaster, right? And that, and that leaves you basically two options. One is you just whitewash the record of those countries, and certainly socialists have done that. They did it with the Soviet Union when Stalin's crimes started to be heard, and they said they either denied them, or once they became undeniable, they started saying, well, you know, look, it's for some greater good down the road. Um, and we certainly saw that with Venezuela and Cuba, you know, even in recent years with, you know, celebrities going off and talking about, oh, how great healthcare is in Cuba. And oh, this, you know, new vision that Chavez is pioneering in Venezuela. You don't hear that as much anymore. But your second option is you look at non-socialist countries and say that they're socialists. You give credit to socialism for what are in fact the products of capitalism. And so if you have a country like Sweden, where it's a mixture of capitalism and socialism, just as the United States is a mixture of capitalism and socialism. If you can say, hey, this is a socialist society, then how? Now socialism is getting the credit for the, the actual achievements of capitalism. And you're able then to sell your moral vision. episode has made me realize something about memes, that they tend to play on what you already believe. If you think the ideal behind socialism is good, if you think that people should be forced to sacrifice for the needy, for the collective good, then you're much more likely to see a meme about how great socialist Sweden is and to have it resonate with you. You're much more likely to hit share, to give a little cheer of support to that idea. And there's nothing wrong with cheerleading and praising what you think is good and right in the world? In fact, I think that's a good thing, to advocate for your values. But as I found out in the many hours that it took me to produce this episode, which started out with just a meme, real thinking about an issue is difficult, and it takes time. 
and challenging someone to identify what they really think and to perhaps see a different way, that can be even harder and take even more time. Someone should make a meme about that. Here's a little advice from Carl Svonberg about what to do when confronted with somebody using Sweden as an example of the morality of socialism or of the welfare state, especially in memes. All I can say is be use your be critical, ask questions, uh, and uh, when you get the chance, you you should totally visit Sweden. <laughs> oh, and of course, now you can share this episode. You've been listening to Rise and Fall, How Ideas Move the World. This podcast was produced by me, Amanda Maxim, and the Ayn Rand Institute. Music was by Poddington Bear. I want to hear your thoughts. What did we get right? What did we get wrong? What questions do you still have about this episode? Call me and leave a message on our fall line at 888-673-5553. You might hear yourself on the air. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more of these podcasts, tell one person that you respect or respects you about the podcast. This is your recommendation, and it's valuable. Thank you. Rise and Fall is available on iTunes, on YouTube, and on the Ayn Rand Institute Facebook page. Wherever you listen to Rise and Fall, please hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, leave a comment or a review. These small acts keep the podcast going and help bring it to a wider audience. Here's what people have been saying about Rise and Fall so far. Uh, Yeah, I love the podcast. want to hear more of it. Hello, Amanda. This is Ken in Nebraska. Love it. Love the uh, format, the clarity, the editing. The content, of course, is beautiful. I travel a lot and like to listen to podcasts in airplanes and in the car. Listen to all three. Love them. Hey, thanks for producing this. It looks like it's going to be a great podcast. Hi, Amanda. I just listened to your podcast, the first one on uh, Islamic totalitarians, and that's a subject I'm really interested in, and I want to tell you that you did a great job. I have a suggestion. It'd be great if you could provide links to uh, all of these uh, interviews that you uh, use in your podcast. That's a great suggestion. If you visit us on the web at einrand.org slash riseandfall, and explore the page for any individual podcast episode, you can find links to lectures and interviews for you to explore further. Thank you to everyone who's called so far. I'd also love to hear from you. Call me at 888-673-5553 and leave your message.